sentiments, baby. Uh huh, yeah. Well, not quite. I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. Big changes are coming to financial regulation and fundraises in the United States with the SEC voting to amend the definition of what is an accredited investor. Now, for those of you who may not be in the loop for these kinds of things, this is basically the threshold that allows people to get in and purchase shares of private companies that have not gone through all of the basic disclosure requirements associated with public offerings. The idea is that if you're super sophisticated or really rich, you can fend for yourself and get the information you need on your own without the government's help, and that companies can sell their shares to you without going through the costly regulatory process of doing an IPO. But these kinds of changes have trade-offs and risks, and it pretends significant repercussions for young, innovative companies looking to raise capital, especially in the fintech ecosystem. So I was delighted to have a conversation with Commissioner Hester Peirce, who was one of the most vocal advocates pushing for a broader subset of people to be included in the definition of who is accredited. We caught up virtually at the annual HPC AI Plus Wall Street Conference, a get-together with some of the leading minds in machine learning and artificial intelligence. Now, who's hot, who not? Tell me who rock, who sell out in the stores? You tell me who flop, who cop the blue drop, who jewels got blocks, who mostly go down to the blue drop. Commissioner, thank you for being our uh, guinea pig here. Well, Chris, it's, it's an honor to be your guinea pig, and <laughs> it's it's a real honor to speak with you. I think you're the famous one, so I'm really delighted to have this chance. Um, I do have to give my standard disclaimer, which is that my views represent my own views and not necessarily those of the SEC or my fellow commissioners. Well, thank you very much. And we are here to hear your own views and to really get your thoughts. You know, there have been some big changes that are coming to um, really the, the, the rules relating to investment, uh, particularly uh, to the private markets. Now, this is an audience with um, a lot of experience in fintech. It's an audience with a lot of experience uh, uh, really in, a, in an interesting space, in the space of artificial intelligence and in machine learning. Um, but, but you've really had now the opportunity to spend a little bit of time, more than a little bit of time, thinking uh, from 10,000-foot level at varying aspects of the uh, regulatory ecosystem and seeing all kinds of new developments pop up from um, uh, mobile lending to uh, cryptocurrencies to artificial intelligence and the like, uh, but, but maybe just to sort of ease us into the conversation, um, how has, in your view, the fintech industry changed during your uh, tenure over at the commission um, uh, and, and since you've come on board? Uh, have there been any particular changes uh, or, or trends that you feel have been really the hallmark of uh, really the developments that you've seen in, in, in the marketplace? I think the biggest change has been, and you know, this is one that's been gradual, but I think fintech is really less of a thing on its own and more of a thing that's just incorporated into everything that more traditional firms do. 
you obviously have a lot of activity that's happening in a world that's a very separate kind of world, but you also have um, a lot of fintech innovation in in the main mainline traditional financial industry. Um, so I think that that's that's a positive development. You obviously want the industry to take advantage of the latest technology. And one fear that I have with a, a highly regulated industry is that it's easy for incumbents to say, hey, this is how we've always been doing things. So why should we change? Um, and if you have regulatory barriers to entry, it makes it much more difficult to someone for someone new to come in and say, hey, you may have been doing it that way, but there's a better way to do it. And we're gonna we're going to challenge you. Um, so I think that we are seeing some of the some of that challenge uh, actually seeping in. Now, I personally would like to see us be a bit more um, welcoming of that innovation in a way that would allow some of these new non-financial type firms um, or ones that haven't grown up in the traditional financial space to come in and and compete as well. Yeah, you, you know, it, it's really interesting because uh, someone told me once, you know, what will they call fintech in 10 years? And I said, what? And they said, finance. Uh, there is a, certainly a kind of mainstreaming that's uh, potentially going on. Um, uh, uh, and and really this this kind of interaction as, as you're observing between sort of the legacy financial services providers and then these 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 upstarts. And, you know, as, as I sort of said at the outset, there are all kinds of, you know, different pieces to the fintech puzzle. Um, uh, you know, fintech is itself a kind of a, a term of art, you know, and, and uh, it can include, again, from a SEC perspective, I guess, crypto, high frequency trading, uh, marketplace lending, crowdfunding, cybersecurity, and, and, and the like. I mean, when you hear the term fintech, I mean, what what does it mean to you? First, two part question, and then uh, are there any parts that give you more or less optimism than others? Uh, given again your 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 time at at the helm at the commission. Well, I, when I hear fintech, I think of things like artificial intelligence. Um, I think of things like. Um, decentralized finance, some of that, a lot of what's happening there, I would say is fintech. And then just the more normal things of how are you incorporating machine learning into what you're doing as a as as a, a financial services firm. Um, so I think it can mean lots of different things, but, but anything that involves new technology. So I guess, you know, we could say that fintech changes with the times, right? Um, there was, there was financial technology before Computers too, but obviously it, now all of it is is related to um, computer technology, and and so I think we'll see it change over time. Um, the piece that gives me the most hope is, you know, I think people talk about this a lot, but I, I think this is an important piece, which is making sure that the financial industry reaches everyone, and that's something where I think financial technology um, changes the cost of of reaching people that you might not have been able to reach before and maybe designing products in a way that will be um, more appealing to a wider audience. And so that's, that's really encouraging to me. I, I think we need to get the next generation um, and the entire next generation involved in, in investing and thinking about their planning their financial futures. And if we can do that by giving them a mobile interface that they find to be a great user experience, um, I think that's really fantastic. 
Now, with that, I'll answer the second piece of that, which is kind of what worries me. Um, it is great that that you've got people excited. You have you have a whole generation of people who are now sitting at home with not a lot else to do, and they're thinking, "Hey, let's get in on this stock market." Um, and so, I think that that is it's it's great that they're interested, and I think it's um, great that they're experimenting with things, but. We always, as securities regulators, are going to worry that people are also getting a little bit over exuberant and and uh, maybe getting themselves in over their heads in in ways that um, that we would hope they don't. But I think a lot of people really are going in eyes wide open, and they're and they're realizing, wow, I can make some money, lose some money, and I'm learning something in the process. Well, well, I guess from that standpoint, you know. Um, uh, you, AI, machine learning, crowdfunding. Um, are, are there, um, fr- from a legal position, um, are there any areas that for you as an officer at the Securities and Exchange Commission are maybe easier to address than others just because they maybe fit the existing regulatory paradigm um, easier than others? And, uh, you know, are there other areas that are just trickier or, or more challenging precisely because there is more novelty and, and you know, the, the, the base layer regulatory infrastructure um, uh, isn't, isn't quite in place? Well, I mean, I think each one of the pieces of fintech poses its own challenges. Um, there, you know, something like crowdfunding, you, we have a special we have a special statutory scheme and a special uh, regulatory scheme built under that statutory scheme that that governs it. And that looks kind of much more like you would expect to see in, in any kind of traditional securities rule book, right? So that's very familiar. Um, but even there, I would say they're, they're unique issues because, you know, most of these, these crowdfunding platforms are going to be internet-based. And so you're going to you're you're going to deal with a whole different set of issues. I think where the biggest challenges come in are something like decentralized finance, because so much of our securities regulatory scheme is built around this idea of having these intermediaries that we can go to and say, we want documents, we want to know what happened, um, we're holding you responsible, we're placing the, the, the responsibility primarily on your heads. Well, if you really do achieve decentralized finance, then you don't have that intermediary to go to anymore. And I think that is a really challenging idea for us. And even more um, sort of on a more basic level, if you really create decentralized organizations, you move away from the traditional corporate structure, um, even in, in doing all kinds of things, right? And so then how do you think about disclosure if you don't have a corporate structure? How do you think about um holding people responsible for for um, externalities if you don't have a corporate structure. Some of that is outside the SEC's realm, but I think from the point of the securities regulator, um, it's a really fascinating question. And then something like AI, um, even there, you can think about problems that are that that are sort of unique to that, right? Where people are are incorporating AI into into giving investment advice. So how do you think about the person who designed some of the the software that underlies that um, 
what's the responsibility on on that person? So I think there are lots of really fascinating questions. You know, you know, it would, just listening to that answer, you know, um, you, by identifying on the one hand decentralization, and you know, the, the fact that a lot of the regulatory uh, entities and the regulated entities in securities markets have at least traditionally been viewed as as the gatekeeper. And so part of the the regulatory strategy has always been with regulatory agencies, sort of identify who's in charge of of what, and then um, where necessary, uh, impose rules or standards for the conduct of that individual, I guess, for for the benefit of others. And that's really, really hard, uh, as you're uh, noting, in a a world where responsibility could be either uh, diffuse or, or, or managed in an ad hoc manner. You had also mentioned the idea of automation uh, and, and machine learning and AI, and I wonder sort of what that happened or w- how does that inform your perspective when you have automation uh, put on top of a decentralized stack, right? Where you have, I guess, automated uh, decentralization or you know machine-driven decentralization. I mean, uh, it, it seems to get you really uh, sort of puts a lot of stress on the regulators, on the financial regulators in terms of how they would exercise uh, supervision or even knowledge and understanding of of a market. Um, Have you seen any um, of those kinds of cutting edge issues slowly seeping onto your uh, dashboard? Well, I think even from our perspective as a regulator, we're, we're we're trying to keep up a little bit, right? Our, our means of regulating have also become more automated um, and we're relying more on machines to regulate. So in some sense, maybe that helps us keep pace. Um, but I, I think we really have to step back as a society and have a larger conversation, right? Because we're regulators, we're given our statutory uh, mandate and our statutory mandate was built at a time when everyone thought of it, as you said, of, of the gatekeeper model with intermediaries. Um, and so I think we are maybe having a little bit of difficulty of thinking about how some of those statutes will apply. Um, for example, there's a debate over how much responsibility lies with the person who writes the code. If I write code, and someone else takes it and does something bad with that code, am I responsible? Or is only the person who did something bad with it responsible? Um, It would be our natural inclination to want to go after the person who wrote the code because that's the center of the problem, right? And we see the people who use it as just, um, we can't go one-off after them. It's much easier to go after the person who wrote the code. But writing code is, is... protected speech arguably too right so i think we're going to we're going to be confronted by some really um, serious questions and i tend to to lean toward the side of saying you know if you write the code and you're not using the code to do something bad it's not you who's responsible but i think other regulators might come out on a different on a different side of that question you know it, that's 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 really interesting. You know, uh, both in terms of code, and I guess again, you know, for the purposes of of, of our of our audience here, you know, um, AI and, and machine learning and the sort of the automated part of our of our infrastructure 
you know, um, is, is, is pretty interesting, especially when that infrastructure starts to adapt and change on its own uh, based off of uh, new, new inputs. Um, and, and I guess ultimately even, you know, how you as a financial regulator think about code as a kind of data input and, and the inputs into different algorithms and how, you know, what kind of infra- regulatory infrastructure do you want to design, um, uh, you know, to, to, to prevent um, microeconomic and systemic risk? Um, you know, you've, 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 you've made uh, a lot of headlines on and, and lots of different issues, um, but really one of the most recent was on this, this issue of accredited investors. Um, uh, and, and you've had some really interesting things to say. Uh, you've, you've been perhaps uh, one of the more vocal policymakers uh, when it comes to this issue, which uh, for those who may not be entirely aware or, or, or up to speed on it, it, it's a question of who should be able to invest in what are understood to be private investments. So um, uh, investments where an entity um, ha- ha- or an issuer hasn't yet registered uh, uh, with the SEC, or or at least the the securities haven't been registered with, with the SEC. I mean, m- maybe you can walk us through what those rules used to be as to who can invest, um, uh, and again, these private placements, and and what are now these new reforms? Because I think they'll have a really um, uh, co- potentially enormous consequences for uh, fintech and and the industry as a whole. So traditionally, the rules for accredited investors have been based on wealth and income. uh, And those are standards that were set quite some time ago um, and apparently set rather arbitrarily. We really don't know where they got the numbers, 200,000 single, 300,000 couple. um, But those were the numbers. And then over time, those haven't changed except for um, in Dodd-Frank you couldn't count your health, your house uh, towards your wealth. So, so that, that piece um, came out, but the, the concern that I and many others have had, and, and this is, this is an issue that I've gotten so much feedback on people react viscerally to something that says, Hey, you can only access a part of the market if you're already rich. Well, that seems really that seems so, something seems fundamentally off about that in in this country, um, and I think that the concerns have grown over time because um, you've seen more and more of the capital raising happen outside of the public markets and happen in private markets that are only accessible if you've got this golden accredited investor key. I'm just going to jump in just just to make sure it's crystal clear for everyone. So so basically, when you when you want to raise capital. Sort of the paradigmatic, the, the the way that most people think about doing it is that you do an IPO, right? And and and, and which means we go or the issuer or or the founder of a company kind of fills out a lot of uh, paperwork about his his or her company, including financial statements and disclosures. Um, they usually hire a big uh, law firm maybe to help them out, and uh, then they go through a, a process whereby. Um, they they give those documents or hand those documents over to the Securities and Exchange Commission. They uh, sort of uh, evaluate those documents, and prior to the sale of the, of any securities, any stock to the general public, it's gone through the uh, sausage making uh, over at the SEC, 
and, and obviously, again, the um, uh, founder uh, has to abide by certain kinds of very specific disclosure requirements. And if any of those disclosures um, are found to be materially uh, m- misleading, or if there are any om- omissions in that document, then you can face um, varying kinds of, of sanctions, including varying kinds of, of civil liability. And then alternatively, there's this private route um, where you don't have to go through all of the procedural uh, machina- uh, machinations and, and usually not the same disclosure requirements, uh, usually very, very few disclosure requirements, but there are still some anti-fraud measures that, that, that still apply. And, and what you're saying is uh, you've seen this uptick in the number of people who are saying, I don't really feel like going through the public markets um, and filling out the paperwork and, and, and hiring all the lawyers and, and perhaps accountants. I'd rather go through the private markets where there's more um, uh, flexibility and, and fewer costs. And, and I think that over time, we've seen companies wait a longer time before they've made that call to, to do the paperwork and then go into the public markets. And part of the reason is, right, they don't feel like doing the work. I think it's, it's and they don't feel like facing the, the requirements once you, you are public, which have been growing over time. But part of it, too, is that there's a lot of money sloshing around in the private markets. And so they think, well, as long as we're able to get the funding we need in the private markets, why should we try to go through this um, public markets piece? Now, I should say that just because a company is public and its disclosures have gone through a review by the SEC staff does not mean that the SEC has signed off and said, hey, this is a good investment. Um, Sometimes people get that piece of it wrong. But, But I think the key point is that there are there are fewer mandated disclosures in the private markets. And so what the what the the rationale for the accredited investor standard is, hey, we want to make sure that people who are in those markets who aren't getting a guaranteed flow of information that the SEC's rules for public companies require, that those people are kind of able to handle it, right? They're either able to handle it from a perspective of they're able to go to the issuer, the company trying to raise money and say, hey, this is information I need. Um, Or if they do invest and something terrible happens, they can maybe afford to bear the loss. So there are these two kind of strands that undergird the accredited investor um, framework. Now, again, I tend to come from the perspective of, as a regulator, I want to help you get the information that you need to get, but I really don't want to make your investment decisions for you. In our most recent um, rulemaking on this topic, we took a first step towards saying, okay, we get it. Accredited investor can mean something more than just someone who's got a lot of money. Um, so we're, we're opening it up a bit um, by saying that people who have certain, certain securities licenses are able to qualify as being accredited investors and people who work at investment firms um, are able to qualify. So that is actually a relatively minor change in the term of in terms of numbers. Um, but in terms of philosophy, I think it's a big step forward. And what we also did is we said, if anyone wants to come in and talk to us about credentials that you think should make people accredited investors, then come in and talk to us and we might be able to say, yep, you qualify as an accredited investor as well. Um, and so I think 
I was happy to see that that small step forward, and I think we could see we could see more changes in the future. So, so, so uh, you, when you had mentioned the the idea of, of of numbers, so presumably because under the accredited uh, investor standard, as you had mentioned, you, you usually have to make a certain amount of money. Uh, you know, two hundred thousand dollars as a, as an individual, or three hundred thousand um, dollars as a family for the past subsequent sort of couple of years. This particular specific rule would really help perhaps someone who's um, you know has a Series Seven sort of license, a certain kinds of securities licenses, but maybe hasn't been in the business long enough to have a a certain income. And so, the, the, presumably, the, the immediate impact of those rules you're saying could be um, uh, rather limited. But, uh, or, or, or are you also already getting a sense that there are some other groups of people who, who could be um, immediately benefited from uh, this increased uh, access? If you get an MBA, you should be able to um, be an accredited investor. Someone can come in and make that case to us. Uh, and so I, I'm hoping that people will take us up on that. And I've already heard some initial interest from folks. So I think it's, it's positive. So, so that's, that's, that's really super interesting. I mean, we're talking to a crowd, uh, uh, you know, full of not only lawyers and financial professionals, but also software engineers. Um, and, and really the, the, the range of expertise and sophistication is, is pretty vast depending on sort of how you define and, and, and understand sophisticated. Our sophistication. I mean, I mean, for for you, and, and you know, perhaps more than um, any other, perhaps more than any other uh, uh, commissioner or, or, or policymaker nowadays. You know, you, you spend a lot of time talking to people in um, sort of the technology space, or at least those who kind of live in the intersection of technology and financial services. How do you view the the investment like the, the definition of what sophistication could mean, and and how broad do you think that understanding could possibly uh, be uh, from from your vantage point? Well, I mean, I tend to take the view again quite a quite a liberal view in the sense that I would I would allow anyone to make the decision for herself whether or not she feels she has the expertise. Um, of course, I would want people to be aware and very, you know, very much um, aware that that in investing in things that are not in the public market, you're facing you're facing a greater set of risks because there's less information out there. It's not that bad things don't happen to public companies too, but it's just that when there's less information, it's sometimes easier for something to get hidden. And I you know people need to be aware of that. I'm always advocating that people ask lots of questions, public, private, whatever kind of investment you're making. Um, but what I sort of my my broader philosophy is that you can't just assume, oh, the expertise resides in Washington D.C. at the SEC, um, and that we we can figure out who should invest in what because we can see, oh yeah, this person is is really well educated. This person isn't, you know, someone who's been working as a tractor uh, repair person for, for her whole career might well be a better, better able to assess whether or not a tractor manufacturer is going to succeed or fail 
with a new um, with a new venture than someone who has been you know who's really wealthy but has made that wealth in the cosmetics industry, for example. So, I think we need to recognize um, the fact that the, the reason our capital markets work is because because knowledge and expertise and intelligence is dispersed and it's different. And I mean, for, to bring it back to kind of the main subject of this conference, I think that's what artificial intelligence um, and machine learning, those ideas are built on this notion that that information really is dispersed. And, and the more of that you can collect, um, the, the more you can see about what's going on. But we sometimes as regulators forget that there are a lot of really smart people out there. They're just all smart in different ways. And, and that is true. I mean, you know, one of the in, very interesting things is is sort of, you know, the whole ethos, I guess, behind even DeFi is that, you know, knowledge can come from all different kinds of, of parts of, of, of society. And, and, and you know, the, the, more, the more people you have perhaps to, to kick the tires on things, um, the, the more rigorous in some ways your, your analysis um, can, can be. Uh, but you know, w- when you look at the these reforms, you know there have been um, nonetheless some considerable pushback uh, on the reforms, um, especially you know this idea that you know when you think about the tra- traditional disclosure regime that's that's been around um, since the New Deal, that that these kinds of mandated disclosures uh, were all designed with the perspective of protecting people. Uh, from charlatans, uh, digital and and otherwise, um, especially since uh, many of the private offerings don't come uh, with the same disclosure as as public offerings, and um, in some, although not all instances, uh, uh, many of the issuers are are are, are smaller. Uh, so even uh, sophisticated people um, could have less uh, information on basing their decisions. You know, when you think about something like technology, um, when you think about artificial intelligence, when you think about your uh, area of super uber expertise uh, in the crypto space, um, uh, is is do you have a sense that that there could be greater risks um, for fintech when you're thinking about the the risk side of the aisle, uh, given the fact that the investments themselves or the products or the services um, and the technology is, is inherently complicated. And, and w- what's the mix, you know, what's the regulatory vantage point of thinking through something where the disclosure regime, whether or not you have a lot of mandated risk disclosures or a few dis, uh, uh, disclosures, whatever that is, has to sort of interface with um, an issue area uh, that that is uh, particularly complex. Um, uh, what what comes to your mind when you think about that? And uh, uh, is fintech different or not uh, from other kinds of areas where people make um, or, or could be making investments in, in the private markets? Well, I think that first of all, I should say I think our public markets are fantastic, and I think there are a lot of reasons why we should want companies to be in our public markets. Not only for visibility and transparency into what they're doing, but often by the time a company reaches the public market stage, it really is an important part of the of the um, economy and the community. And so, so 
it can be valuable for many reasons to have to have lots of insight into um, companies. Now, I, as a securities regulator, think it's my job to get information to investors to make investment decisions, not to other people. But you know, there's also a status of being a public company. So, just um, for, for that point, I think is an important one for me to make. Now. Our, our disclosure regime in the public markets is one that's principles-based, um, largely. We, we do have some prescriptions. Uh, I, I would like us to move even more away from prescriptions and have a really principles-based approach that really ties to you know, what's material to a particular company, and that's going to differ by company. Um, and lots of companies that are in the public markets or in the private markets now are doing things that are extremely complicated. So I, I mentioned the, the drug companies, for example. Um, I think that's an area that's one, that is not one that's easy for people to understand. You need to understand about uh, medicine. You also need to understand about chemistry. You need to understand how, how um, medicines interact with each other. You might need to understand um, you know, there there might be uh, there might be uh, other components that tie to, to um, understanding where where certain um, inputs come from. So you might need to understand something about um, how how ex- import export um, trade works. And so there are lots of different pieces that fit in. And you know, with with car companies now, I remember going to uh, get get my car uh, repaired, and this was quite some time ago. And and the mechanic just threw up his hands and said, "I can't deal with these, with these new cars. They're really complicated. And so you're going to have to go to someone else, basically. And and so I think even things that are sort of very basic actually are are very complicated. And you might have to make an assessment about the technology there too. So my advice to people is, you know." You should be asking questions. You should be thinking about where your expertise lies if you're really going to try to be the one who identifies the next um, the the next Google or the next you know Apple, the next company that's going to that's going to get really big. And you think that you have a that you have a real understanding of it. Make sure that you really do. Um, and and if you don't want to be that kind of an investor, you don't need to be. You don't need to understand everything. Right, you can make a choice to have some help in making your investments, whether that comes from investing through mutual funds and ETFs or or using a, a financial advisor or other financial professional to help you invest. Um, so I think maybe we we tend to focus a little bit too much on complexity and say, oh well, then you have to stay away from it entirely. Now that said, in the crypto space. There is an element of needing to be able to do something yourself. I mean, you can just go to one of the more established exchanges and you can buy crypto. Um, but if you want to hold it yourself, there, there are additional barriers. Now, I think that the initial set of people in the crypto space who are all real computer enthusiasts, they're real, you know, they really know what they're doing, they know how to program, they know how to think about all of these kinds of things, they understand cryptography. They're now turning their attention toward creating user experiences that work for everyone else because they understand that if this technology is going to become mainstream, they have to allow it to function in a way that I won't even know I'm, I won't even know there's a blockchain behind what I'm doing. I'll just see this user interface that I love. 
And so I think that's kind of the next generation is translating all of this stuff for a more, uh, for, a, for a less educated audience um, and, a, and an audience that's less interested in learning about the technology. You know, there was so much in that conversation and, and in, in that particular um, uh, uh, answer. You know, I, I was struck and I'm always struck as a securities law professor and um, you know, when I when I talk to my students uh, every year, when I first started teaching, I would ask them, so how many of you have invested in stocks and own stock? And, you know, maybe, oh, maybe, I don't know, five to 10% of the students would raise their hand. On the other hand, nowadays, I also will say, well, how many of you own Bitcoin or how many of you own Ethereum or some kind of cryptocurrency? And I'll get 35, 40% of the class, you know, raising their hand, um, you know, which points to a kind of a, a generational change. Now, as a, as a, as a professor, you know, it, it's, it's hard to tell because on the, you know, what to make of it. Um, you know, on the one hand, I get this sense that uh, they are more sophisticated in the sense that they are reading avidly about it because it's exciting and it's new, uh, if, if one will. Uh, you, know, the, you know, we are still talking about law school students, so they're not necessarily technologically sophisticated, but they're still, you know, uh, there, are, there are a couple of kids who are, who are pretty darn uh, sophisticated, but it, it, is, it is a mixed bag. Um, and, and, and it, uh, you know, as a, as I go into now, you know, well, well into my second decade of, uh, of, uh, well into my second decade of teaching, you know, there's this question about, um, you know, as our information economy changes, you know, what does that mean for the disclosure regime, Right. Because on the one hand, you know the, the the kids have much more information um, at their fingertips. Um, they also have, you know, the, there's there, there's more potential pitfalls with, with with disinformation. But you know, net net, they can get much more uh, data than 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 in the past. Again, with the proviso that many of the the areas where they could be looking for that data may not necessarily be be be, be regulated. Um, but but it does sort of push on and 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 create interesting questions about not just what sophistication means, but also when you go back into the history of the securities law, like what does access to information mean? Right. Um, and I think that those are uh, some some really important um, questions that that the securities regulators are going to have to 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 grapple with, both in terms of the amount and also, you know, the amount of information, misinformation, what do you, what do you make with those two pushing and pull factors? Uh, when you do, uh, we'll be rounding out, but I am uh, uh, interested in um, talking a little bit about, about students. Uh, do you get a sense um, uh, that in the fintech uh, space, um, you, you know, and as uh, a new and rising generation of, of, of investors kind of come to the forefront, you know, what do you see in this new sort of rising investor class? Um, you know, I, I was reading yesterday that, you know, we're really reaching a tipping point where the millennials and Gen Zers are outnumbering, you know, the uh, baby boomers. I'm a member of Gen X, so I just don't matter. But, uh, you know, like, like, are you getting a sense as, as to what they're thinking about and what they 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 are viewing in terms of their investment decisions that could end up shaping the work of the commission, um, you know, in the in the next several years. 
The one thing that I find really exciting is that they are thinking about things with fresh eyes, which I, I suppose every generation does. But I think because 2008 happened at a pretty formative time in a lot of their lives, um, they're thinking about what's going on um, in the financial system. And they're trying to think about ways that, you know, maybe they can reinvent some of this stuff. And, um, and, and they are believers in this idea of decentralization and the value of, of, of spreading things out, right? So they're seeing concentrated um, power in certain industries. And they're saying, hey, we don't like that so much. We would like to own this ourselves. We would like to own our data ourselves. Uh, and so there is, I think, some exciting change that's coming there. But I also think that that there's a real chance for us to get more engaged investors in coming um, in in these these generations that are coming up because they are willing to to look at stuff and do research. They may not do it the same way that older generations did, but they're willing to do it because they can do it all at their fingertips. Um, and they're they're you know they're willing to experiment, and so I think that that's really exciting. Now you know there's there are a lot of other trends. I think one of the trends that's that's getting a lot of attention and a lot of attention from younger investors is ESG, um, and so that's something that probably is a bigger topic than what we want to talk about here. Um, but I think there there are some um, questions coming to us as securities regulators about those kinds of things. But I, I always come back to the point that I think our principles-based regime has worked quite well over the years, and it does adapt to the times, and I think it will continue to do that. Um, but I hope that you and your students will continue to think about some of these bigger questions of, as we change, as our institutions really fundamentally change, do regulations need to change in any fu more fundamental way as well? Well, well, thank you so very, very much, Commissioner. I know that, that that's a series of questions, not only my students, uh, certainly the FinTech Beat audience and, and the audience uh, 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 in the artificial intelligence community themselves will be grappling with. And I, I really appreciate your time and uh, taking uh, a, a bit of your very busy day to, to talk to us about these uh, important regulatory changes. This was such an honor. I'm such a fan of yours. So it's an honor to be on your show. And, and thank you to the conference audience as well. The question of what is an accredited investor is, like all securities law, subject to change, in part because so much of what we consider to be securities law is driven by the facts and circumstances. And as Commissioner Peirce notes, those facts and circumstances are evolving quickly as investors are exposed to much more information than ever before, pushing on the very assumptions behind our disclosure regime. What this means for investors is not entirely clear, especially where a good deal of that information is misinformation and where long-standing regulatory protections are ultimately eased. My hunch is that the only way this ends up really working out for everyone is if the private market itself steps up to the challenge to fill in the gaps when investors need it. But the jury is out as to whether or not that will be the case, and I'm hoping for the best. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up 
at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C H R I S B R U M M E R D R. We'd love to hear from you.